0: Some men have a good look. All they have to do is keep their mouth shut. And they can take home any prize they want. Still the mouth opens.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 9 of Citizen Dame, a podcast that hopefully this week isn't talking about garbage people. Yay! <laughs> trying As to keep always, that to a minimum. <laughs> exactly. At least for at least for the holidays. As always, I am Kristen Lopez here with the phenomenal Karen Peterson. Hi. Lauren Humphries Brooks. Hello. And Kimberly Pierce. Hello. And hopefully you enjoyed our episode, our mini so that we did, Karen's uh, interview with D. Reese. And because we had so much to talk about that came out movie-wise while we took that break, we decided to do another special episode, this time just reviewing the slate of movies that have come out in the last two weeks. Yeah. Mostly, too, because it's Thanksgiving. We don't really want to talk about horrible people on the day that our you know country was founded by oppressing Indians.
0: So... Well, thankfully, there hasn't been a lot of new s- n- new people named, I guess. Right. There's been it more is... information about people we already knew about. So. Yes, P- it people is. People are uh, taking
1: the week off. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So, thankfully, oh if you are sick of hearing us talk about the, the male spectrum of society being terrible, then you've come to the right episode, because we have a lot of movies to discuss. Some good, some bad, some in the middle, I'm assuming. So, let's start with some quick recaps of what we've been doing in the last two weeks because Karen and I were not available last week because we were at AFI Fest. Um, And Kim has also been covering Denver Film Festival. So let's discuss a couple of the things that we're not already going to break down uh, in bigger reviews, but just some stuff that we saw. Kim, since you uh, are all the way over there in Denver, how was uh, Denver Film Fest and some stuff that you enjoyed, some stuff you hated, throw it all out there.
2: Oh, this is going to be a really quick one because I'm actually still kind of catching up on a boatload of screeners. But i made mean, the most of diving into Denver because we always have the Denver Film Society and stars out here run the Denver Film Festival for the, usually the first week and a half or so of November. And the big we had some big red carpet kind of draws going on so lady bird which we're going to discuss i Tanya, which i'm sure we're going to discuss let's see what else did we do um i had been kind of jumping in on some of the we typically have a large run of they bring in a large number of um, international films female directed films kind of the Big one I had really enjoyed was Cornish Kennedy, and it is is a French and it's it's Algerian action directed and written by Dominique Cabrera, and follows a group of young uh, youngsters in France, kind of along the coast, and very kind of solid thriller beautiful cinematography just makes such an amazing use of that landscape that they have and drawing some just stellar kind of relationships between kind of the three main kids as they kind of skirt the boundaries in this highly glamorous tourist town but being local so lots of drugs and drugs and developing the relationships between them as they're kind of struggling through all of these different situations surrounding them it was probably one of my favorites that i thought can't really talk about too too much most of my most of my focus at the moment was the big ones as i'm still catching up there's some great screeners that i am still looking forward to get caught up on um 1993 was one i believe there was one called the there is one the wedding so there is still a lot more to come there and more coverage coming
1: okay yeah it sounds uh like, Kim had a great time. So. Big, and, big and busy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Karen and I spent uh, several days covering AFI Fest. Uh, this was Karen's, uh, not her first radio, this was my first first time at the festival, and I think I got my money's worth.
0: <laughs> Karen, what about you? Why don't you go first, because uh, I stayed longer than you did, so. And that's right.
1: She did, uh, Karen stayed the whole festival. I can only stay part of it, so... Some of the stuff that I know we're not already going to talk about, but um, I did get to see Gemini. That was one that I really enjoyed, it's like a throwback to like those 80s, 90s kind of Showtime movies that you might recall watching when you first got cable. Kind of a noirish throwback there, involving mistaken identity. Willa Kirk and-, and Zoe Kravitz are really good. The movie does not stick the landing mostly because I fear, like, the budget just ran out and they were like, we really need to finish this now. So that was a bit of a letdown, but I really enjoyed it in spite of its flaws. I also saw Thelma, which was really good. It's kind of like if Carrie and Repulsion didn't hate their female characters and actually wanted to explore some things about sexuality and religion. um, It's really good. The, The one movie from the festival that I just did not... Enjoy was thoroughbreds, which everybody but me seems to have enjoyed. It's being touted as this take on Heather's and Heavenly Creatures, which are two of my favorite movies. And if you're gonna homage those, then you need to get it right. And it has two really great actresses. It's got Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook, but it feels like it just thinks that that Heather's worked because of quippy dialogue. And there's like very little character development. It just it looks beautiful, but that's all it is. And it was really sad seeing Anton Yelchin in one of his final roles, playing like this drug addict, convicted felon for statutory rape character. I was sitting there thinking, why? I mean, obviously, you know, you, you hindsight is twenty twenty, but. It was just really depressing to see him. And and the, the meaning of the movie, like people people told me, Oh, your complaints, that's that's the point of the movie. I get the point. The point of the movie is so surface level that I understand its intentions and I was just not a fan at all. I saw more good than bad though, so and of course Karen and I got to hang out with a bunch of people, so in the <laughs> end it really wasn't about the movies. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh man yeah Karen. what
1: what about you what about your afi good bad ugly all of that
0: so all right well here's a rundown of everything i saw and then i'll go back and talk about a couple of things specifically i saw 14 films i saw call me by your name which of course we're going to talk about at length later of course we're going to talk about i saw wajib which is a palestinian film mr Roosevelt. I saw that too. Yeah, Gemini, the Leisure Seeker, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, The Disaster Artist, Loveless, Sweet Country, I Am Not a Witch, Newton, Hostiles, I Tanya, and Molly's Game. So it was very busy for me, but it was it was great. There wasn't anything that I just hated. There were a couple that I wasn't super like thrilled with. Loveless, which is Russia's. Uh, official entry into the foreign language film category, I don't get what the fuss is all about. It was a very frustrating experience. It just... it's, It's very unlikable people that you're supposed to be caring what happens to them, and I just really didn't. And that's a big thing for me. Like, if I don't have a reason to care about characters in a film, then I just don't like the film. And so, I don't know. But it just... It felt... It felt underdeveloped, too. So I don't... I, a lot of people are loving it. I don't share that love, but that's just me. I saw The Leisure Seeker, and I know people have been mixed on that one. It's Donald Sutherland and Helen Mirren. I really loved it. But I think for me, a big reason why is that... So if you don't know what it's about, it's Donald Sutherland has Alzheimer's in the film, and Helen Mirren has cancer. And they hop in their RV, which is called The Leisure Seeker, and just go on this last final road trip together, because they know that their time is running out, and so their adult kids are like, Mom and Dad, you need to come back and take care of yourselves, and they're like, whatever, we're going to go have some fun, and it was just a really endearing film for me, because it reminded me so much of watching my grandparents. My grandfather died of Alzheimer's in 2003, and just watching the conversations they had, the way they pick at each other, the way she doesn't always understand, you know, and she gets really frustrated when he doesn't remember things and she takes it personally. It was like, Oh my gosh, it's like they watched my grandparents and made a movie about them. So I know some people felt like it was a little bit, um, disingenuous and I was like, then you have obviously not seen someone close to you go through Alzheimer's. So that was my feeling on that one. The other one is I Am Not a Witch, and it is set in Zambia, and it's it's like a, a social satire. Essentially, the, the basic story is that there's this village, and they have witches. And so what they do, like, to keep the town safe from these witches, is they have to go live in, like, this little farm or something and they have these ribbons that are tied to them so that they can't fly away and cause trouble and this nine-year-old girl just shows up in town and no one knows anything about who she is or where she came from and she just shows up and then people from the village start accusing her like oh well these terrible things started happening as soon as she got here so they decide she's a witch and then the guy who i guess is like the mayor of this village he decides that he's going to use her abilities to help him out and so she's like helping him solve crimes and like she come she becomes kind of the judge of the town and stuff and she's this little girl and it's just it was just a, a really interesting movie it was very different than i expected it was really um it was at times very funny and very heartfelt and this little girl she does not say much in the movie but she is very good and you just it's you know, you just get such a sense of there's just this depth to her that I just I just wanted to know more about her. So that was a really good one that I enjoyed. So, Yay.
1: Yeah. Uh yeah, if fest was, was a lot of fun. I'm oh excited. I'm so excited great. to go back for the whole festival next year so that <laughs> I don't miss out on Karen's pictures of. Awesome people!
0: Uh, I got to meet yeah. Tommy with y'all. Like he that's did. amazing. Wow.
1: <laughs> we we got Karen and I were feverishly texting each other saying that we were sitting next to Warren Beatty. <laughs> so. That was that was a highlight. Um and I'm fairly confident that I'm like
0: best friends with everybody from Call Me by Your Name, with the exclusion of Army <laughs> Hammer
1: who was not there and
0: I don't know why you have that impression, Kristen. Just because they were running after you to try to get your opinion on the movie. I mean <laughs>
1: Exactly. And we just kept running into them at everything. So, and that yeah. literally
0: happened. Like we're not that just liter- making that up. Yeah. That
2: kept happening. One of them just needs <laughs> to tell Army Hammer how much he missed out.
1: Well, ac- according to the fact that they saw my my cell phone <laughs> background uh yeah that that could be a possibility it's actually good that he didn't show up because after i saw the movie i was like a mess
0: so she's still not
1: over it i'm still not over it i i want it again okay i need this movie back in my life but yeah we'll we'll get to that so Where do we want to start on the Big board O movies? I I would actually like to start with a movie that came out right before we left for break. Because, oddly enough, there's a mixed reception to this on the episode. uh, (laughs) Murder on the Orient Express. (laughs) This is Kenneth Branagh's take on the Agatha Christie story involving a group of suspects... On a train, uh, a person is murdered, and acclaimed detective Hercule Poirot, played by Kenneth Branagh himself, has to deduce who the
0: killer is. Um, no, no, if you... no, sorry. I think that for this segment, we need to say it properly. It's Hercule Poirot. <laughs> what she said, <laughs> okay,
1: exactly. Um, if you don't remember seeing the trailers for this, just play that Imagine Dragons song and you will remember it. Which was actually my big complaint with the movie is that um, the, that, that song did not play at the end credits. <laughs> um, I wanted it to happen. So this movie did not make a lot of money when it came out. But there is a fan base that enjoys this. And the person that actually I think enjoyed this the most is Lauren Humphreys Brooks.
0: Yeah,
1: so, I did. I'm gonna let her explain why she loved it.
0: <laughs> I am so shocked uh, by this.
3: <laughs> uh, well, I, I, too. I All right, I just have to say, I have to say, I went into this movie being like, uh, I saw it yesterday. Um, I went into this movie being like, okay, I love Poirot, I love Agatha Christie, I love David Suchet as Poirot. I mean, he's the ultimate. He's like the bar that everybody tries to to achieve one of the things that I have never liked about Suchet is his version of Murder on the Orient Express. It's very dark, it's a very like weird adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express. So I was actually I actually prefer the the version with Albert Finney. Mm-hmm. Is that the Bergman? That? Is that the
1: Bergman hmm? one?
3: Yeah, it's like Bergman and um, Honorary, I think. Lauren Bacall, yeah, Richard Woodmark is the victim. Yeah, Woodmark is the victim. Tony Perkins is in it. Wendy Hiller is. In it. It's it's one of those you know every, it's a every actor of the seventh generation is in this movie. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I went into this honestly not expecting to like it at all, hoping that I would, and I I just really enjoyed it. And <laughs> maybe it's because I was in a good mindset for it. I just really wanted to see like a good Christie adaptation. It does the book very very well. It actually deals with some of the more disturbing aspects of Christie's work or her racism and kind of her ethnocentrism and begins to cut through that it makes Poirot as this character who kind of breaks breaks some of that down there's some missteps i think that they went a little too actiony in places like mm-hmm. some of there there's at least one scene that i was like i have no idea why we have gunplay in this now <laughs> But
1: there, it's, yeah, if, it's if very, anything, that gunplay scene would have been a perfect place for an Aaron Burser joke, and that didn't happen.
3: they <laughs> again disappointed. It's it's a very I mean it's a very theatrical film. I think that that's one of the things that Brownout does very well, and actually it's it's quite suited to something like this where everybody are these typed characters. That's one of the things that Christie excels at. So I, I liked Branagh. I think that that's really what it came down to. I thought he gave a great and very different performance as Poirot. He still had the humor, but not quite as inactive as a lot of the Poirots are. Uh, he is very much more man of action, which I found that I was actually getting into. And I, and I do have to say, this is like the first time in my life that I'm like, oh my God, I'm attracted to Hercule Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was a very disturbing experience for me. I'm still working through that. Yeah, I just I really liked it. I I actually liked Johnny Depp in it of all people. And as you know, spoilers—he is the one that gets violently murdered. But his few scenes are actually quite good, and and he plays a great scumbag. So it felt yeah, like a... I, I was into it. I I have no complaints about it, quite <laughs> honestly. With Johnny Depp, it
0: felt like it was a glimpse of the old Johnny that you know that we all yeah. fell in love with, and it was it made me happy to see it and also sad that we don't
3: get more of that. Well, yeah, between him and, uh, him and Branagh was great. It was very, very good because Poirot at at this point, you know, Poirot dislikes this man intensely Mm -hmm. and the, the exchange between them was very like fraught and very intense. And I was, I was surprised. And, you know, I, I have a lot of problems with Johnny Depp, obviously for, um, for a multitude of reasons, but just as an actor, I was like, "Oh my God, he's actually like you say he's actually he's actually the Johnny Depp I remember." Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was admittedly very nice to see. Just and then and then we had to watch him die. So
1: yeah, yeah, watch, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no, watching watching the end result is kind of cathartic because it seems like there is an awareness of Johnny Depp's low q rating i'd like to think that brano is intentional in in how he films that for me i found this to be beautifully shot i mean the costumes the the train itself is it it made me and my friends say like i want to take a train ride like i really want to go on like like a really you know like lavish train ride um but I found it to be so forgettable, um, because you have, and the problem that I have, I, th- I think you have with kind of stacked casts nowadays, and and we'll, uh, you guys can tell me if Justice League suffers from the same thing or not, is that you have all these big actors that we know are so good, and we don't get enough time, like, the movie tries to parcel out about an equal amount of time for every character, but there are so many characters. So, like, there's a moment where they're referencing a character by name, and I actually wrote in my notes, who... Is this person? I have no idea. I know it's not the people with the big names, so it must be one of these unrecognizable actors who have no name recognition that I don't really care about. And that's the problem when you have so many figures in a movie is that you start to just identify with the ones whose faces you recognize. So, you know, I loved Michelle Pfeiffer. I think she's, yeah. again, doing such good work this year in small roles, and she's so good in this. I, I wanted more Leslie Odom Jr. just because I want more Leslie Odom Jr. and everything. <laughs> and and even if we're talking about sexy people in this movie, we get sexy Jafar. Marwan Kanzari is in this, and he's hot. Um, he's in this for about you know the whole movie, but he's just kind of like in the peripheral vision yeah. a, a lot of the times. But that was really it. Like, Josh Gad it was just kind of there. Daisy Ridley, they tried to bump up and, you know, kind of round her character a bit more. But I just, I didn't feel connected to anybody. I, I felt like, it. this is a movie that, to me, felt like it would work better on the page. And I've read the book, it's been a long, long time since I've read the book, but for, for Hercule Poirot being such a great detective, I felt like, there was n- little room for me to try to deduce things on my own. if that makes sense, like it mm-hmm. felt like he was telling me a lot of information that I was like, where did he get this from? Right.
3: Um, so yeah. that
1: was that was my big problem with the movie. Yeah, it, no, I agree. Oh sorry, go ahead,
0: Lauren.
3: No I was just gonna say I think the, I say that part of that is, is an issue of the source material and trying to adapt what is actually a very complex book right into uh, that's a mystery you know into a into a you know, less than two hour film. Well, BBC
0: uh, is
1: doing. Yeah. BBC is doing, or they didn't, an, an adaptation, a miniseries, correct? Recently,
3: or they're going to. They did, and then there
1: were none. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, I was thinking this would be great for for a BBC miniseries where you could have, you know, like six hours.
3: Well, uh, the thing
1: is, a hour film. Yeah. Well, Lauren, question for you because I what I
2: was thinking as I was watching it, and you know, you sound like you know the source material so much better than I ever could. Branna tends to be so faithful with his adaptations. How was it? I mean, glossing over spoilers, of course. How was it in your mind as an adaptation?
3: Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've read this particular book. I think it was one of the, par- the first Poirot's I ever read. Um, and I've also seen so many adaptations of it now. I think there, there are at least three or four, I believe. Based on my memory, it's very, very faithful, Mm-hmm. uh and in fact i actually uh, uh Kristen was mentioning the fact that you know it's the, it seems like these characters aren't really you know they don't get a lot of development and that i guess would be one of the few complaints is that he does the the sort of getting poirot onto the train bit and i think that it takes way too long to actually get to that point and we're kind of we're supposed to be introduced to this character and like understand he's this great detective but uh, it, maybe it's it's almost that Branagh needs to believe that his audience already knows that Hercule Poirot is this great detective and just put him onto the train and introduce the characters and really get a little bit of space to develop these characters with these excellent actors that are sitting right there for him and he just doesn't spend a great deal of time with um, before the murder occurs. I actually... Uh, oh, sorry. No, I, that's that's just my opinion. <laughs>
0: okay, Well, I, I read the book... Like a week before I saw the movie. Okay. Because I hadn't read oh, it again. Nice. I hadn't read it in so long. And I would say that if the movie, honestly, it felt like I was getting the Cliff's Notes version of the story. And not just because there are parts that are just difficult to translate, but because it was like there were just parts that they just kind of completely glossed over that I didn't feel came across in the film. I'm trying to think of some specific examples, but first of all, most of the motivations, it was like just yeah. so barely touched on like any motives that any of the suspects would have had and it just so it's like when you finally find out what's really going on it just it didn't to me the resolution did not feel earned the crime and what happened I get that but Hercule Poirot coming to the conclusion that he came to didn't feel earned and also I didn't love the way that he presented the results because the way it plays out in the book, he's like, I see two scenarios. Here's scenario A: the guy got off the train at the last station before we got stuck in the snowbank, or scenario B: the killer is right here. And in the in the film, they didn't do it that way. And I was like, ah, that just felt like a missed opportunity for me because I loved that part in the book.
1: Yeah. Do we do we see any Oscar potential with this? I, I see costumes and that and a yeah, visual costume set yeah. design maybe. Yeah,
0: possibly yeah, no, set design yeah
1: well let's move into the biggest well it's not really the biggest movie of the weekend because it's actually not making as much money as people wanted <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's the biggest
0: the movie of the weekend, weekend. it's just biggest not saying movie of the that as yes. much as it should um. be <laughs>
1: Justice League, the continuation of the DC Extended Universe uh, following the events of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. It's essentially their Avengers gathering Batman, Wonder Woman, Cyborg, Aquaman, and The Flash. To defeat some unseen big evil um, that I'm actually surprised we have not seen spoiled in the trailer. I didn't go see this It's two hours. Zack Snyder still owes me thirteen fifty for Sucker Punch, and I have forgiven him for that. <laughs> uh, as much as I love Jeremy Irons, with every fiber of my being, I will wait for a bit. that son of a bitch. Yeah, it was me $3 from the red box too. Cause the last movie I watched with him was insufferably terrible. So <laughs> yeah, I'm going to wait for TVD on this one, but well, um, I'm going to cost- tell you,
0: he's not in it enough for you to rush out to the no, theater. So. That's,
1: That was my big takeaway with uh, BVS, because I made the mistake of watching it for the first time on the extended (laughs) cut. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, so I was like, this movie bait and switch to me. It's like, come for the Jeremy Irons, but stay for the horrible bastardization of Jesse Eisenberg quoting Paradise Lost for two and a half hours. Um, (laughs) No. So I didn't go see this, but um, a couple of you guys did. So talk amongst yourselves. Was it was it good? Was it bad? I have no idea. I have no expectations for this movie because I am not a comic book person in spite
0: of what I'm currently watching at home. And I, Kim I, and I, I, I are the only ones that saw it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I, yeah I saw it. Did, how did you feel about it, Karen, before I launch into a tirade?
0: <laughs> okay, so here's my thought. I felt like it was better than Batman versus Superman, but that's honestly not saying a whole lot it's it's fine, I guess, but <laughs> I, I really Back don't have high praise for it. I, it's fine, <laughs> fine, I guess. It's fine, dot, dot, dot I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, that's how I feel. Like it's There was nothing about this that made me go, oh, okay, they're finally moving in the right direction. It was just like, well, it's not as bad as the last one, you know? And here's my, here's my takeaway from it, as far as, because, you know, obviously the Marvel comparison's come every time one of these comes out and the the problem is that it feels like Warner Brothers is just so desperate to catch up to to Marvel that they're going about it the completely wrong way and they're not understanding the lessons that they should be taking from Marvel whereas Justice League it's like they're just trying to hurry up and get everybody together because they think that that's the winning formula. What made the Avengers work so well, I'm talking about the first one not Age of Ultron, <laughs> But what made the Avengers work so well is that you had already had standalone Hulk, Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor. You had already introduced Black Widow, Mm -hmm. uh, Phil Coulson, Hawkeye, and Loki, who is the villain in Avengers. So when you get to Avengers, you've already met all the important players you already know everybody. And so there wasn't a lot of time that had to be spent on exposition. It was just, let's get these guys together against this common enemy. With Justice League, you still have to introduce half the team, because they haven't had their own standalone movies, and Unless you're a diehard comic book fan, you don't really know anything about Aquaman, except for that he's some dude that lives in the ocean, and no one wants to be him, you know? (laughs) Like, you don't know, and who the hell is Cyborg? Nobody knows anything about Cyborg, either. I'm kind of a comic book person, and I don't know Cyborg. (laughs) There you go. And then they also had to introduce the villain, who was, like, the lamest villain I've seen in a comic book movie, I think.
2: Thank you, yes. Yeah, and it just...
0: oh my gosh, not even that good. Like, (laughs) it just, it was just, it was bad. But, and so that that, I think, is the problem. When you have to introduce four major characters into this film, you have to spend a lot of time explaining who they are and what they're doing. And they didn't do, I felt like the Flash, I guess, was okay. I was at least intrigued to want to know him. I thought Cyborg they introduced pretty well. Aquaman, no, and this is where I think they really should have released the Aquaman movie first. If they had at mm-hmm. least done that, and then you're just meeting Flash and Cyborg and Steppenwolf the villain, then, well, then it would have been a little bit less of a hurdle I think. But
2: Flash, you don't have quite as much of a hurdle either because you've already got the TV series going and they're doing, it's Barry Allen once again, so the the plot line is going to be fairly similar so your audience knows the Flash and knows Barry Allen
0: um, yeah, but the thing is, like, I don't watch that show.
2: True. Touche.
1: So... Well, and, and I think that having not seen the movie and having very little interest in it, you know... DC is one of those that you always can tell that they focus group the shit out of their movies. Oh, you yeah. know, they are definitely more analytical about things, which is why you get these stories about, you know, huge editing, you know, passes on something like Suicide Squad. You know, they try to focus group and analyze based on numbers, you know, what they think is going to work, that you end up chopping up a movie like they did with Suicide Squad, to the point where it's incomprehensible and pleases nobody. And, you know, a lot of people on on Twitter are saying that DC at this point has such a horrible track record, with the exception of Wonder Woman, that it's not surprising that this is opening soft, because there's been no goodwill established short of the belief that they think this is just going to mint the money. So
0: well and, and the, this the opening of this film and it's at 96 million for opening weekend which it's it's hilarious to me that we live in a world where we're like 96 million dollars that's it what a terrible waste you know <laughs> but that's the world that we're in now a 300 plus
2: million dollar budget
0: right yeah, yeah that's true but the, that's the thing though is it shows that there is a limit to how many times you can just keep cranking out these movies that you expect to be huge money makers. Eventually the audience will get tired of them and will turn away.
2: They should be ashamed of themselves. (laughs) They had, they built up so much, at least they built up so much goodwill after Wonder Woman. And after all of that, you know, moving towards it you know will they can you know oh look they're re-editing maybe to make this film more like Wonder Woman Ooh, are they going in the right direction they squandered the shit out of it the- this the the weak Marvel comparisons make so so much even more sense mm-hmm. not because of bringing in Joss Whedon and to me what I jumped throughout the thing you could tell the reshoots because it had the Whedon voice in it mm-hmm. but then you had half of it with Zack Snyder and his goddamn Christ metaphors and everything that he brings to them, you know, and it felt like a weak ass Avengers because you didn't have to me. There was no chemistry between the group whatsoever.
0: No. If
2: there was such there was such talk there, Ben Affleck, you know, talking about the sexual tension between him and Wonder Woman. If he thinks that's sexual tension, I want to know what he <laughs> thinks sexual tension is. No, that, that was... wasn't it.
0: No, that was very much he's got a crush on her and she is not interested. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly how that came across to me at least. So The
2: treatment of Wonder Woman and the Amazons was disgusting. Oh my I was going
0: to I was going to ask
1: are the criticisms about the Amazonian wardrobe warranted? Um I
0: would say part uh, mostly yes. Yes. I would some say of the yes. char- some of the characters are covered appropriately, but a lot of them are not. I mean,
2: it's not a, it's not a flashback. Why are they suddenly wearing leather armor bikinis? Right. It's, well, and that's the thing. Just, like they're preparing they for battle,
0: and that's what they put on. And it's
3: like, what? What? <laughs> It's it just sounds so depressing. <laughs> like I've seen you know, all all of the pictures that have come out of the the um the Amazon costuming and everything, and the comparisons between the the co- their costuming in Wonder Woman, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, guys, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the male gaze. You can't right. do this right. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Like well, they, the there's... costumes were right there, and they just decide like, oh, we're just going to toss those out. Like we're and then there are
0: so many camera shots that are, like, scrolling up and around, just, like, to say, embracing those, Wonder Woman. A... And I'm like, oh, my gosh. make I was going to say, I was going to say,
1: on a three scale. Separate times. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, on a scale of Sucker Punch to Wonder Woman, how many upskirt shots are there?
0: I never saw Sucker Punch. So. <laughs> oh,
1: Sucker Punch has so many upskirt
0: shots. It is
1: <laughs> disturbing. I think, it's Dian- I think it's Diana's first or second
2: shot in the movie. She's perched on, she's on a ledge getting ready yeah. to fight. I can't even remember now. But it was, it's the first, like her first scene, we see her in action. You see, they come up the ledge and, yep. Yeah, straight up, you know, and of course she's, you know, standing straddle superhero style on the edge of this ledge. Mm-hmm. So you see... Well, and even
0: when they're not up going up the skirt, they're they're panning the camera all the way up her bare legs, you know, and it's just like, guys, seriously? Because
3: <laughs> so, Wonder Woman did that so well. One, one of the things that terrified me when going into Wonder Woman, I was like, oh, please, God, just, I, I can't, I can't look at Wonder Woman as like this just total, totally objectified sex object. Please, God, don't let them do that. Right. And I was so happy when they didn't, and just hearing this, I'm like, oh, great. Well, the
0: thing men should the... not be allowed to
3: direct these movies anymore. No, I'm just going
0: to say it. <laughs> No, they shouldn't. They should, well, Patty Jenkins should just direct everything. I mean, that's, that's, I think, the biggest takeaway. I just have to mention, too, for a minute, something that really, really bothered me, and I don't know that it bothered anyone else, because I haven't seen anyone else talk about it, but um... And this is getting into spoiler territory, so if you don't want Justice League spoiled, like skip forward ninety I, seconds. I hope or you're going to
2: say what I'm thinking, but yeah,
0: I think <laughs> I am. But um, so yeah, skip ahead ninety seconds and and you'll miss it. But so basically, part of what brings the group together is they realize that they really need Superman, so they go through this process to re, re- reanimate him. And <laughs> Is it like a practical
1: magic esque
0: animation? Oh my gosh, that would be
1: really cool. Uh,
0: so, uh, he basically just like yeah, I don't know. But anyway, he, he wasn't.
2: They they ended the last movie on the damn dirt, hovering over. Exactly. They blew their own spoiler halfway through.
0: Yeah. Well, and uh, the whole, the fact that they bring him back, like, the way they did really bothered me. It should have been that, oh, he wasn't actually dead last time. They just faked that or something. But, but anyway, so they do this reanimation. And when he wakes up, he is going crazy and he doesn't know what's going on. And he just starts getting really violent. He headbutts Wonder Woman. And I was just like, I am not okay with Superman headbutting Wonder Woman. It just—it was so out of nowhere, and it really bugged me. And it's just—it—it uh, it just made on top me of, so pissed off at the movie.
1: Is that on top of Henry Cavill's Botox lip? <laughs> yes. It—it it looked a little gauzy and pretty. It, it kind of <clears> looked <throat> like to me
2: that Barbara Walters lens for yep. a bit. You know, yeah. The picture—the yep. picture,
1: there was the a lot picture of that. that I saw made him look like Buzz Lightyear. Like if you <laughs> see how Buzz Lightyear's mouth is the entire movie, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so well, well, I, well, I let me go. Let me go into one, or I guess a grope and a half, or gripe, but gripe and a half, grope and a half.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're groping people I'm... now.
2: <laughs> Edit point. Okay, and a gripe <laughs> and a half that I had, and the did the did Batman's mansplaining to Wonder Woman about everything she did wrong after World War One. Did that bother anybody else?
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> But I just was like, well, yeah, that's Ben Affleck for you.
1: Well, I was going to say, <laughs> Affleck is making no bone. He is so desperate to get fired. If if everybody saw that video of him trying to make Harvey Weinstein-esque jokes during the press tour. I did oh, not. Yeah, yeah. I,
2: I had so... I He was probably my favorite part coming out of that horrendous Batman versus Superman. I had nothing but good things to say about his Batman. And I just want him out he wants out it's horrible
1: yeah well and and
2: just the treatment of lois lane as well turning into she openly says she's totally fine writing kitten fluff pieces Mm -hmm. and both of these characters both her and diana both get mansplained to by batman and superman at various points about everything they did wrong and it's like oh yeah you're, you're totally right no i get it it's God damn it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I just always deserve better from this franchise. I just, I really, I really like the idea of Batman mansplaining everything after World War One to Wonder <laughs> Woman. I'm just like, yeah, you totally, I mean, you would have done so much better, Bats. Like, what have mm-hmm. you, they, they start, I mean, I'm sorry, Batman versus Superman, those two characters start this massive, like, dick measuring contest. And they wind up being like, "Oh, but your mom's name is Martha." Like, it's such bullshit. It's like, "Oh yeah, but Wonder Woman, man, you really screwed up there, honey." Right. Yeah, I don't exactly. know if you know about World War II, but like, it
1: wasn't <laughs> beneficial. Yeah. No. No. If it, everybody go and watch the uh, the clip of him uh, do answering the questions, it, it's it's easy to find on Twitter. He is so desperate to get fired. It is it is not even funny. And I think the cast is like an inch away from beating the shit out of him. They should just fire him. <laughs> And get Army Hammer like they were going to yes. back in twenty fucking thirteen or whatever the hell it was, and just just give me my happy place, okay? Or just...
0: they could just not do these anymore and just make Wonder that's Woman true. movies. Yes,
1: that's true. But but Karen, why why are you taking away what makes me happy? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm trying to save him from this franchise for that's you, true. Kristen. True,
2: that's true. Okay, I I want my Jason Momoa Aquaman film, and that. Well, you're getting it. Between the literally the two high points that I had in this movie were Ezra Miller's Flash and Jason Momoa's Aquaman. That's that's it. That was my review in terms of the positives. It was <laughs> yeah. those
0: two characters. Um, yeah. I think that Ezra Miller, his character definitely had potential. I didn't. I don't know. It felt a little bit to shoehorn in in some places for me it was like they were just trying so desperately to bring some humor and using him to do it which is not I a problem he was necessarily. And, fun
2: and i liked it I,
0: well i i think i just didn't i mean i don't watch the show like i said and so i don't know enough about barry allen and so True. i felt like they needed to introduce him better in order to really make that work and then um jason momoa is like oh uh, yeah he's pretty and all but i was just like i I wish that I'd seen the Aquaman movie first because I just don't know enough about him to care about him. So
2: DC needs to learn. You have to set it up. They, they did the same damn thing they did with Suicide Squad. You have to, because not only are we setting up those three new characters, but then you're also setting up what happened with Superman. Uh-huh. You're setting up Batman and his little quest and you're setting up the, the big bad of the picture. Right. You can't do that in 30
1: minutes. Didn't, didn't we uh, learn all that lesson the hard way with uh, the last Spider-Man before that series imploded? Well, apparently suicide we didn't learn anything. Spent,
2: well, suicide Squad tried to set up what was it? 8 characters in the first, you know, in the first act of a movie. It doesn't work, DC. Stop well,
0: it. Well, I mean it it can kind of work depending on what you're trying to do with it. Like it works in The Dirty Dozen. You have this ensemble of people, which is what they were trying to make Suicide Squad Suicide yeah, Squad like yeah, sci- the sci-
2: sci- sci- classic. Yeah, it works.
0: But that but no, but I'm saying like it yeah, it can work. That worked great. And but the problem is that they didn't learn the right lessons from those films that have done it right.
1: So Well, do we see any Oscar potential here? If maybe there are sound? Oscars
0: for this movie, I mean <laughs> fuck no. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm su- still Suicide not over Squad the fact won. that Suicide Squad is an Oscar winner. so Yeah, hair and makeup. I was gonna say maybe sound uh maybe but i think there are some good potential nominees in the sound categories that i don't have a place for it right now i okay. think between i think if a if a dc movie is going to get in for sound i think it'll be wonder woman with
2: it needs that to be one if DC gets world anything, war II it needs stuff. to be
1: wonder woman
0: i mean world war one stuff so
1: yeah so we don't see it going very far um Please send your snarky, you don't understand the DC universe to um, we don't care at gmail.com. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's, let's I don't want it. No. <laughs> let's segue into another movie that um, not all of us saw because we have uh, two that we know everybody saw. Let's talk about Mudbound, uh, an actual good movie. Karen and I uh, saw this. Lauren, did you see this?
3: Yeah, I saw it at a
1: uh, New York Film Festival. Okay, so uh, Kimberly is is going to see it after uh, we record because it's <laughs> awesome. But this is uh, D. Reeves, a film about two men who return from World War II to work on this farm in Mississippi and have to deal with racism and a bunch of other you know shit that happens. This is based on the uh, D. Reese and Virgil Williams wrote the screenplay as well. I saw this at AFI. Karen, you saw this at... A
0: screening a few weeks before Yes,
1: you, you went to Netflix and saw I this. I did,
0: I went to the Netflix office. They uh. have a very nice screening room.
1: <laughs> so what did we all think? I, I am, I think, the most mixed on this movie. I feel like I need to see it again, it, which is good because I have Netflix and they sent me the screener for it too, so I won't have to deal with like uh, Punisher trailers <laughs> before I watch it. I can be in the right frame of mind. But I, I feel like watching this... I watched this late at night uh, after a very busy day, so I feel like I lost something. I might have might have been like nodding in and out at a couple of points, but I am mixed on this. I think that for most audiences, it's gonna be difficult to get over the way that D. Rees presents this. This is like reading a book, you know. You have different narrators who are telling their portions of the story. It reads very beautiful and literary, and I think that that's different than we're used to getting our information i'm not saying that's bad. i'm just saying that it's going to kind of throw you off base a little bit once i got over that though i was really into the movie and how it looks at these characters who are all limited by either race or gender the you know the legacy that they have um to deal with and the cast is superlative i mean everybody's really great But for some reason, I just always felt one step removed. And I feel like maybe seeing it again would help. Karen, you interviewed D. Rees. So what are your, your thoughts on it?
0: Well, I love the film. I think it's just I think it's really great. I actually liked the fact that it feels so literary that that really worked for me. I will say that when I was first watching it, and I've only seen it the one time and I'm very much looking forward to watching it again now that it's in my TV on Netflix, but... The thing that I I kept thinking as I was going through probably the first like half hour or so was that I, I was very concerned about it being on Netflix because it feels like there are a number of places where I could see people just checking out. Like, you know what, this yeah. is too hard yeah. to watch. I'm going to come back to this later. And then maybe they come back to it, maybe they don't. Whereas I was sitting in a screening room full of people watching it basically in a movie theater. And didn't have that, you know, oh, maybe I'll just go watch this instead for now and come back. Like, it was just, I'm committed. And so I think that people who are watching it at home may not, I worry that they won't have that sense of commitment and stay with it. Because once you get past about the first half hour, it gets, like, it really picks up and it gets really good. And then, oh my gosh, the scenes between Garrett Headland and Jason Mitchell are just so yeah. great. I loved the two of them together. People keep talking about oh well maybe one of them will get nominated for an Oscar but which one would it be? And then for me it's like I cannot separate them. The two of them are so great but they're so great together that it's almost like one performance done by two people in a way. So I love the movie. I think it's great and I think everyone should watch it and just you know even though it's, it's tough to get into it at the beginning and just stick with it and watch it because it's so worth the journey. So
3: Lauren, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm in complete agreement with uh, with Karen on this one. I really loved it. I also saw it in a movie theater, um, so I, I definitely agree with the the concern maybe about watching it on a smaller screen because it is a very it's a very visual film and it's a very aural film. Mm-hmm. There there's a lot of sound and the use of music and the use of the, just the accents of the characters and the way that they talk to one another and all of that is uh, I I think it has it packs. Probably packs a greater punch in a movie theater than it necessarily would on a small screen. At the same time, it sounds like Netflix has given this film a life in a way that it, it maybe not wouldn't have have gotten, and it definitely deserves to be seen. Um, I was, I agree that it, it takes a little while to get going, but at the same time, you need that setup. Oh yeah, you absolutely. need to really be immersed in. The, the culture that you're dealing with and the complexities of racial relationships and of gender relationships, because it's not one of the things I really liked about the film was that it's not like, OK, here's the bad racist white people and the good, decent black people. There's a lot of exchange going on. There's a lot of prejudice and there's a lot of different kinds of prejudice. Uh, you've got the the sort of father of the of the family who is this vicious racist, right? But then his sons have their own obviously racial issues, and they they change. One of them, the Garrett Hedlund character, changes because he goes to war and comes back with a very different perspective. But he still has this, you know, these underlying racial attitudes. His his brother is the same way. I, I think in in the um, the press conference with, uh, that I saw after the film at New York Film Festival, I think Jason Clark said something like, well, he's, he's a good, kind-hearted, family-oriented racist. And I think that that's a, a good, like, and he was making a joke, but it's also like, that's a good description of this character. He's not a bad person, but he's also a racist, and he's holding both of those ideals and, and concepts because of his culture and because of the world that he's grown up in. And I liked that the complexity of of those different dialogues, the complexity of the relationships, the anger that is that is very real. The anger of and I'm completely blanking on all of the names of the characters, um, but the anger of the, the black family and the father in that family who has been working this land for so long and then sees these white people coming in and just basically taking over. The land that you know, he's that uh, he talks about his blood being in it. That this is a part of him, uh, and it's in a way that it's not a part of them. And all oh, wow. of that, I think, is very layered and complex. It doesn't let anyone off the hook, and it doesn't condemn anybody wholly. And that's that's very unusual in a film right now. And it's wonderful to see uh, uh, to see that the sort of scars and the wounds that are a part of the American character and that are a part of the character of the South uh, yeah. and that we all have to deal with.
1: <laughs> well, what I, what I appreciated is, is that you watch this in the vein or in the context of what American films that look at race have always kind of focused on, which is slavery as we know it in, you know, the, the civil war era. Um, you don't, you don't really see a lot of post-reconstruction 1940s um, looks at, like, sharecropping. And and that's what I, I really appreciated, is that it's showing us a different side of the, the history of race in this country, which is that by World War II, which we tend to falsely assume we had become more enlightened, even though, you know the Jim Crow South was still alive and well and and civil or uh civil rights movement was still you know another 20 30 some odd years in in the future so you get this dynamic of especially with the Jason Mitchell character where he's gone to war he's gone to another country where he is more accepted and comes back here to this you know supposedly land of the free where he still has to leave out a back entrance. And that's very hard for him to reconcile with, um, which I thought was was intriguing in terms of showing just the history of how we assume race has kind of played out in this country. I think in, in cinema, at least, we tend to show like, slavery times bad and then we hit world war one and then things just kind of mellowed out until (laughs) the civil rights movement when things got really bad again. And then I I think that film this, this does a good job of showing how film has presented that and showing that it's wrong. So yeah, I, I love Jason Mitchell, especially I really appreciated Karen Mulligan in this movie kind of playing this, this woman who again in a totally different spectrum is thankful to be married to a man because she's perceived to be this old maid, but at the same time wants to be equals in in their marriage and is just dealing with the fact that she's not and just becomes very demoralized and and the last like forty minutes or so are just the most intense visceral like frightening thing you will ever see and and i i I don't know if I can necessarily say that in terms of how it's presented, or in terms of how, you know, the history of, of race in this country plays out, but either way, I mean, the last 40 minutes of this movie are just yeah. just, like, get you in, in your your heart. It's okay. it's, in, it's insanely intense.
3: I, I absolutely agree with that, and one of the things I really liked about the film is that there is that thread of violence underneath the entire film, mm-hmm. but it never really erupts, it never really comes to a head until that moment, and it's not she doesn't get, I give DVs a great deal of credit. She doesn't drag it out. She doesn't like, it's not one of the problems that I had with 12 years a slave was that after a while, it was just like, I can't watch people suffer anymore. I just can't.
0: Right. And
3: there's a tendency to then shut down in, in Mudbound, It was like, the, it's this threat is always there. It might erupt. It might not. And then when it does, it's a visceral, painful experience that I think stays with you. And, and really just kind of rips open all of the, the, the viciousness that is going on just underneath the surface throughout all that. And then also because you've got the uh, sort of circular narrative, because you've got the, the opening sequence, which actually takes place after the ending of, you know, you've got the bookended sequence that you realize the the conflict between these two families and where that conflict com- comes from so by the time you come back around to it and you see the ending again it's like oh this is why these people have so much so many problems with one another but also a great deal of of connection to one another
1: The bookends also show you how something like context and tone, because you watch their expressions in the first part of the movie, and then you revisit their expressions at the end. I mean, and Mm -hmm. you just, you, you get that. I mean, it's a testament to everybody's acting, that they're able to convey all that stuff, you know, based on where it is in the film. I think it's also worth pointing out, you know, that we're all, we're four white women talking about this movie, and watching this you know as a person who definitely benefits from white privilege it was interesting to watch there's and this isn't it's not i won't spoil it but there's a a point in the movie at the end where a character has to make a choice for another character and the one character essentially benefits from his skin color i mean because nothing overtly terrible he has to live with guilt and and fallout from his decisions, but he doesn't live with the physical consequences of that. And that was really that that stood out to me because I, I was sitting there and I was like, D. Reese and and Virgil Williams, who wrote the script, are just so on the money because it's pretty much pointing a finger at all every person in that audience who is not African American and pretty much saying like, you get to live with the the guilt and the comments but you don't live with the physical long-term ramifications and you never will and that yeah. that i think is is very potent for these times
0: mm-hmm. well and that's something that she and i talked about in our conversation we were talking about racial currency and and how garrett Hedlund's character you know he he just tries to ignore his and he just tries to to act like it's you know nothing and then he gets to a moment where he has to make a really serious decision and it, it just because of everything that's gone on up to that point it's like you really feel for him but at the same time for me i just kept wondering like if he had made different choices along the way would they be at this place now
3: and exactly yeah yeah his character doesn't want to acknowledge that there's that there's a social and culture or a social difference between himself and and his friend and right. that just the fact of their skin color being different changes their relationship and it always it always will in the culture that they live in right uh, well and, it can't and al- not yeah and he has a responsibility to understand that
0: yeah and along the way i mean the fact that when they whenever they spend time together they have to do it where no one else sees them he has to you know they have to hang out in some isolated place not because they're doing anything wrong they're just getting together and talking and sharing their experiences but because of the fact that one is white and one is black that is enough to other people to be wrong and it's and it's something that if if he were more willing jamie were more willing to acknowledge that then perhaps they could have addressed it you know in some way i don't know but one thing that I I really appreciated about Mudbound too, consider I mean yes we are four white women talking about this film but I I really appreciated the fact that it presented this story in such a great way. But I never felt like I was being preached to. I never I never felt like there was any message being beaten over my head. It just felt like just this really great story that was very important that people need to see. And it was something that I felt like it taught me a lot about myself and how I see different issues and how I approach things, but I didn't feel like it was trying to force me there.
1: Yeah, I I think, and and again, this goes back to the history of how we depict the black experience in cinema. You know, too often you get two two narratives, which is the movie that's supposed to make white audiences remember how horrible slavery is, something like 12 Years a Slave, Mm. or you get the white savior narrative, Right. which something like The Help. And this movie doesn't fall into either. Again, because it's showing a different facet of history. Because by post-World War II, I mean, we had kind of come to this tenuous... Like, we had fallen into place as a country of separate but equal. And in the South, I mean, it was still the Wild West, but people had just become complacent to the way things were. We weren't owning people anymore, but we were still obeying these rules of us and them. And this movie, I think, does a good job of saying we all yeah. need to look at ourselves and look at the context of this history and how we have all played a part, how we all should feel bad, and how we – are we any better now? You know, and I I would say the argument is probably no in many ways. So I, I did like that element is that it doesn't fall into Garrett Hedlund is the hero – but it also doesn't say, you know, shake a finger at, at audiences and say, you should feel terrible. Like, it's just presenting a story that makes you think beyond the limits of the frame, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Where do it's we stand? Very, oh,
3: go on. I was, I was just going to say, it's a very hopeful film, also, uh, amazingly enough, despite some of the violence that happens and some of the commentary that there is. A, an, again, Reese, I believe in the press conference for at New York Film Festival said that she wanted to end on a message of love and hope versus a message of like suffering and pain. And, and it's, it's wonderful for that because I didn't, like you say, I didn't leave feeling like, okay, we're just going to despair of our, our history in this country. It's like, no, we can actually, it's going to change and it's going to change across, it has to change across generations and we have to all work for that change. Yeah. Uh and so I, I quite liked that.
1: Yeah, um uh, where absolutely. do we stand on uh, Oscar potential here? I again, the Netflix factor, I fear might hobble some things. So I, I right now I have this in script. I also have this uh, wishful thinking in acting and picture, but I just I don't know how we're going to take to Netflix.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, and that's why I really want to. I really want to just really push forward that narrative that no one else would take it. Netflix was the option. I mean, apparently she did have a couple of very low ball offers from some studios, but Netflix was the only one that was actually willing to put money into it. And so I really think that if people in the Academy know that and they understand that, I think that will make them look at it differently. Like, I I think at least I hope that in a way that would make people go, wait a second, why wouldn't anybody touch this movie? This movie's great and then get over the Netflix thing. So that's my hope. Well it's on Netflix. Everybody
1: should watch it. Well, watch it on the biggest screen is possible. Yeah.
0: Well back to the really quickly though on Oscar yes. hopes though. One thing that I would just die of happiness if this happens Rachel Morrison for cinematography. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She does a great job. It's beautifully shot and she would be the first woman ever nominated for cinematography.
2: You're kidding! She's never. No one's been. There's, no there's woman has been ever nominated been nominated wow. for
0: cinematography.
1: Yeah. that mm-hmm. fingers crossed. Knock on wood. So yes, go watch Mudbound. It's amazing. Moving on to uh, another movie that we all saw. We saw Lady Bird. Speaking of Yay. women directors. Yay! Um, Yay directorial <laughs> debut of Greta Gerwig, who also wrote, uh, tells the story of a young woman named uh, Lady Bird. That's what she's called yeah. herself. Um, played it's by her Sherry Ronan. It's given it's her herself. given name <laughs> given to her by herself. Who lives in Sacramento and is going to graduate from high school. It's 2002 into 2003 and has issues with her mom and what she wants to do and boys and all that stuff. So... Okay, I'm going to start. I love this movie so much. I love it. It's my favorite movie of the year. It's the best movie of the year. I I love it so, so, so much. I think we all agree we did not give Greta Gerwig permission to write about our experiences (laughs) (laughs) because it feels... Very
0: relatable.
1: I want uh, royalties,
0: man. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. That was so me. <laughs> Especially if you're me and you live in Sacramento <laughs> and you're like, okay, I know these places. Well, um, she couldn't
0: set it in Chino Hills, California. That would have been too obvious. Come on.
1: Exactly. Gritta <laughs> uh, Gerwig is a, a master of time and place. She makes everything feel relatable, whether it's, it's about some, someone you knew or yourself Shirish Ronan is is queen. I love everything about her in this movie. I love Laurie Metcalf, who I'm fairly confident is my mom. Um, <laughs> you know, I just I love every single thing about this movie. This made me. This movie made me feel. If you feel that high school has been over for you, and for for me, it's been over ten years. Uh, you're going to realize you didn't get over shit. Um, and it still feels like very acute to you. I, I love this movie so much. It's, it, Kimberly, let, let's start with someone new. What, what did you think about Lady Bird? I,
2: I was graduating high school in 2003, 2004. So that that was about me. I was, I was the kid who was trying to get out to the East Coast, you know, going from Denver to Washington, D.C., and that uh, it hit so it's so relatable. I they had me in Laurie Metcalf just had me in tears by the end. There was one particular scene which just absolutely broke me. But no, nothing negative whatsoever to say about the film. I thought the characters were so fun, so likable. Um Lucas Hedges and Timothy Chalamet both were just Excellent. Lucas Hedges to head or has a really great moment midway through that just shows me why those two are pretty much the only probably eighteen to twenty year old actors working in Hollywood right now. Yeah, I'm well, sure. We're, Sharona we're, needs to get break another that Oscar nomination. In a
1: second. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, say that again. Oh, I was going to say we're we're going to touch on the whole yeah every teenage boy trope in this movie in a second. <laughs> and I think
2: Sharona needs to get another Oscar nomination. Yes, for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and Laurie Metcalf probably both. I could see yep. just so much good. I had to rush home and call my mom
3: afterwards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lauren, what about you? What do you think of Lady Bird?
3: Uh, I mean, I think I actually talked about this a couple episodes ago, I think, because I saw it uh, again at New York Film Festival. I loved it. I mean, I I'm I loved every moment. I, th- I think that it says a lot that all of us are like, no, but this is my life. Because <laughs> it's true, because even though, you know, so yes, obviously we did not all go through the same exact things, but the emotions are all there, the experiences, the confusion, the um, like the anger with your parents, but also loving your parents, like all of that stuff is just wonderful. I also do want to say the female friendship in this movie mm. and the female relationships oh, yeah. in general, but I was also just thinking about the relationship between Lady Bird and her friend um, Julie, yes. I think. Yes. Is just Wonderful, And it's one of those, it's very understated and there's like conflict between them in the middle of the film. And, but there are just, there are moments where you're like, this, this is like, this is the real romance. <laughs> this is like, you know, it's, it's obviously that they love each other so much, even in the way that teenage girls do. That, that there's conflict and there's, you know, one really admiring the other, but then finally kind of standing up for herself. And all of that, and I loved how real it was. That it doesn't, again, doesn't vilify every anyone, doesn't you know, hit any of the sort of ridiculous tropes. Just kind of says, yeah, this is this is the way that life is, and the the way that we relate to one another. And then and then Laurie Metcalf, like I I was sobbing. The woman beside me in the theater was <laughs> sobbing. Her husband was sobbing. <laughs> so Karen, what about you? What do you think?
0: So it's actually really funny because. I really wanted to see Lady Bird and I really wanted to see three Bo- billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. They're both playing at the same theater, not too far from my house. And I couldn't decide which one to go to. So I took to Twitter <laughs> and I did a poll and Lady Bird won overwhelmingly. And so I was just like, all right guys, I'm trusting you. So I went and I saw it and oh, my gosh, I loved it. I loved so much about it. And it, I mean, along with what you guys are all saying, it's so relatable. I felt, I felt myself not just in Lady Bird's character, but in several of the characters. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's,
1: there's a, there's a great amount of empathy created for everybody, because you, it's, it's something that I think Greta Gerwig did that, and I love the movie, but Edge of 17, the Edge of 17 from last year did not. Which is, you know, you watch the Edge of 17, and Haley Steinfeld's character is kind of a selfish bitch, and then her mom is also kind of neglectful and at least, you know, very mean-spirited. In this movie, you understand both of those characters' motivations, you know, because they're written so well. So, you know, it's it's not watching them scream at each other for two hours.
0: Well, and that's the thing that's so great. It's like anybody who's been a teenage girl and who has had a mother who raised her and was not abusive can completely see themselves in this relationship between mother and daughter, because it just, it really does connect everything. Like when they're arguing and they're just like so mad at each other, but they're trying on the clothes and they both find something they agree on. And it's like, yep. that's so great. It's like, Oh my gosh, I've had that moment so many yep. times with my mom, you know, like it just, it that's, that's totally true to life. And, and it's just, Oh my gosh, they're, a man could not have directed this film and made it what it is. It needed to be told by a woman. And I'm so glad that Greta Gerwig wrote this and directed it and did such a beautiful job with it because it's, it's a great story and, and it's it. I mean, I just, the whole time, technically this is not her directorial debut because she co-directed a movie in 2009. right? But I mean, this really is her first solo film and it does not feel like a debut. Not even close to it. It feels like she's been making movies for a long time. And that was such a great, great way to see what she's all about, you know? When I
1: loved how she, you know, we're so used to, again, I I keep bringing up kind of the history of film. We're so used to seeing kind of a few key settings, New York, L.A., Mm -hmm. you know, big, big cities. And what I love what she does here, and it's not just because I live in Sacramento, but show how place affects you mm-hmm. whether it's the need to get out and I'm, I'm feeling like Ladybird Bird right now the whole concept that like life is happening somewhere else <laughs> and that I'm just like being squandered here oh I feel that right now um but I love what what Greta Gerwig does with class discrepancy yeah. too mm-hmm. because you know it's it's little things like the fact that you know she literally lives on the wrong side of the tracks or she has this house that she wants to live in which if you've been if you've ever come to sacramento and you go to the fab 40s go at christmas because those people are insane okay what they're decorating it's beautiful <laughs> and even like little things like there's a scene with her friend her new friend that's kind of uh, the popular girl who you still feel like empathy for like that that character isn't written to be just mean. But she makes this passing reference to, "Well, oh, it's okay, I live in Granite Bay. And I was like laughing because if you've been to that area, like that tells you everything you need to know about that character and, and <laughs> her sense of like classism and elitism. It's it's little things like that that I didn't know I wanted in a movie, but now I want them in more.
0: Can I just also <laughs> say how much I loved, okay, so she's in a Catholic high school and right. we've seen, I never went to a Catholic school But I've seen so many depictions of it, you know, in film and television and stuff, and it was so nice to see, oh my gosh, Lois Smith, I adored her, and it was so nice to see this, you know, this, I don't know what she is, she's a teacher or guidance counselor, I wasn't quite sure what she was in in the school, but... Like she's this old nun, and she is so funny and so endearing, and she just she loves those kids so much, and it's not a version of the nuns at the Catholic school that I'm used to seeing on screen. So
1: all the side characters are at the school are really really funny, like the the drama teacher <laughs> yeah. who's like. First one to cry wins.
0: <laughs>
1: um, or, or the um the fact that that uh they eventually have drama taken over by like the football coach. That that was my one of my <laughs> that favorite. That so therapists. great. <laughs> um, and he tries so hard too. He does right, exactly. Um and, and again if you were a, a drama nerd and you love Sondheim, there is so much Sondheim in this movie and it's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we got we got to talk about. I mean, so everybody's talking about which team you're on, which I talked on Twitter about this because I got asked and I apparently had the wrong answer according <laughs> to my be- my friend Terrence Johnson. So what what team do we think out of Ladybirds to two male boyfriends? How do we feel about uh, which which team we'd be on in high school? Are we team Lucas Hedges?
0: Or are we team Timothy Chalamet? So I Kristen and I talked about this. We, I, we did. Um, You're t- I really don't have a type when it comes to <laughs> my type is men. Like I, 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 I like people that are male is my preference, and so I would very much have been I, 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 I liked someone who was very much like the Lucas Hedges character. I liked someone who was very much like the Timothy Chalamet character, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is just another way that I am so Lady Bird. You know, I would have gone for both of them.
3: Uh, ah, Lauren would you. I, th- I think, I mean, I'm trying to think back to myself in high school, uh, <laughs> I think they're probably Lucas Hedges. I, I had a tendency to really distrust the kind of guys that Timothy Chalamet played. And yeah, I think I would have probably gone for Lucas Hedges. And of course, you know, there's, there's a, a big issue with that character right. um, in terms of girls going for him. So yeah, I, but I, I, tend, I like the nicer boys, I guess. Cam, what about you?
2: Same. team Lucas Hedges.
1: Am I the only one that would have gone for the duty pack? No,
2: <laughs> no cuz I, I would have too. I would have gone for somebody is, but I went for the Lucas Hedges.
1: <laughs> oh no, see I told I told my friend after after we got out of Ladybird I was like, this is where Greta Gerwig I feel like stole from me personally because anybody in my family will tell you in high school the person that I lost my head over who I refused to look up on Facebook, because so I don't want to be disappointed, had really great hair. And that's exactly why I loved him. <laughs> and so Timothy Chalamet has really great hair. And so I was sitting there thinking, like, okay, so he's gangly, he has great hair, and he's a pretentious dick. Yeah, he's got, like, all the Christian factors. <laughs> Even now, I think. Um, yeah, it's it's a problem. And I, I just, I, I think we agree. We love... We love every single thing about this. Movie. Can
0: I just also give one shout out to Beanie Feldstein, who plays yes, Julie, yes. and she's so adorable and um, so weird. I just learned this this morning. She is Jonah Hill's sister. Yeah, you didn't know. <laughs> that. I did not know that. Oh.
1: I remember them making a big deal of that about that when uh,
0: Neighbors Two came out. Yeah, I totally missed. Yeah, that. I.
1: I love that this movie brought back Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> I know, which oh. We,
0: that's it's not a great
1: song, but... Well, I and that's mean, another
0: thing that I was so... That was totally me, was when Lady Bird's talking to someone who's like, your music sucks, this is all greatest hits. And she's like, but they're the greatest. I was like, yeah. yep, that's me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love... I love how this movie just creates this little slice of... It's literally like a slice-of-life drama, mm-hmm. and... I, I love it. If if we were creating a world that I wanted to like live in, a movie world, it would probably be this. But then it wouldn't be too different from my own. That's so I don't know Kristen, how don't I feel you already about live this. in that world. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? So where do we stand on Oscar potential for this? I see it for picture, I see it for director. I can see it for acting, supporting, script.
0: That's where I've got it, yeah. Best yeah. picture, yeah. best director, best actress, best supporting actress. Original Screenplay, and I actually have it winning Original Screenplay and Supporting Actress.
1: Definitely. Ooh. So. I could I could support all of this. I could support every, every just give Lady Bird all the awards. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we're going to switch to the, la- we're, we have one last movie. I saved this one for last, because Karen and I nicely argued about it. <laughs> <after> <laughs> And I felt like I needed to be surrounded by people who understood. So, um, yeah, we, we all have finally seen Call Me By Your Name. Yay. Otherwise known as Kristen's most anticipated movie since the year started. It tells the, it's set in the early eighties in Italy, tells the story of a young boy played once again by Timothy Chalamet who falls in love with a graduate student visiting his family's house played by Armie Hammer and stuff happens. (laughs) Um, A lot of stuff happens. <laughs> so, okay, I've been waiting for this movie since January. I've read the book one and a half times. I'm slowly working through the audiobook because um, I'm not allowed to listen to it in public places because I get very stupid. So, I've been waiting for this a while. Uh, and when I decided to go to AFI Fest, the only reason I decided to go was because I was hell bent on going to see this movie. Because I have friends that have seen this like three and four times on Twitter. And I hate them because I haven't seen it at all. So I finally got to see it. And it was everything that I wanted and more. Um as I told as I told everybody, I was like, There's Lady Bird, there's Call Me By Your Name, there's A Trench, and then there's every other movie this year. And a lot of movies I really enjoyed, but like not On the level of these two. I loved everything. I love how the movie is shot. I love how it's acted. I love the relationship aspect in terms of how Luca Guadagnino films just, like, desire this building of, like, you don't know how to act around certain people. Um, I I loved everything. I loved everything. I cannot explain in words how much I love this movie. But I I loved it. So, we're going to leave Karen for last. (laughs) Lauren, what did you think?
3: Uh, I think I, I expressed this again a couple of weeks ago, but yes I, I loved it too i it's it's just a good film, you know it's just very well made it's very well put together it's a great romance you know all of these movies that we're talking about seem to be like coming of age stories to a degree, but they're 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 more than coming of age stories because coming of age stories tend to tend to hit these tropes that after a while get very boring and that get sort of that don't really feel like people actually learning to grow up and learning how to be adults. But uh, this this one kind of fits in with Ladybird in that respect, that it's not it's not about having the happy ending. It's not about, you know, fixing all of the problems that are wrong with you or wrong with your relationship or your relationship to your parents or anything like that. And just about like, you know, learning learning how to be in love with people, learning how to be yourself, learning uh, how to understand your sexuality and all of that stuff. And it's such a good film. The, the performances are good. It's, again, one of those films that I can't... I, can't I, I would try to find something to complain about, but I can't right now.
1: <laughs> it's a very great... It, it's a movie about experience and the, the yeah. nature of, like, good and bad, at least you've, you've had this this experience that you can yeah. call back on um, and that defines you. So, yeah. Kimberly, what did you think?
2: Oh, I... This movie did everything for me anymore. Just I saw. We him. went
1: from Justice Leagues. It's fine, I guess. To <laughs> this movie did everything. <laughs> they,
2: I, I mean, I, I feel bad following it up after Lady Bird because I mean, they. You're exactly right, Kristen. That there's those two a trench and everything else. I mean, no horrible things to say about it at all. Just everything about that was beautiful, from the locations to. The lighting, the cinematography, the I I was watching it in all of the music score. I am now a Timothy Chalamet fan girl. Uh, it's he everything he did in that movie completely that just knocked me over. I was a sobbing mess by the end of it. I, just perfect movie. <laughs>
1: Yeah, love and, my way is like the song of the year now.
2: Because and movie, and you so. have to
3: stay all the way through the credits. Yes, that you have yes, to. Yes, what you're talking final, about
2: absolutely floored me.
3: It's the final shot. It's the final scene. You have to experience it. And that that like you didn't think that Timothy Chalamet could act like throughout the entire film, then you will be convinced by the final by the final sequence.
2: Yes, exactly. Hundred um, percent. Yes.
3: So that brings us to Karen Peterson. <laughs>
1: Karen, what did you think? Because I looked at you after this movie, and the look you gave me was very interesting. What did it look like? I'm curious. It seemed like you saw it. You didn't really know how you felt about it. That's very accurate. I didn't. Yep. Um, (laughs) And Terrence just seemed like uh, the first words out of his mouth were, I didn't like it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well... Okay, I want to be very clear on something before I get right. started. I did not dislike this movie. I didn't. I thought it was good. There are things about it that I I had a hard time with. For starters, the biggest thing for me was that I felt like I didn't get enough time with the characters to really understand them enough to like them. I, I thought the acting was great. That is nothing against their acting. I think they all did a great job. But I didn't really know enough about Oliver or Elio to understand why either of them would be interested in the other and that was that was troublesome for me because I just it didn't give me enough of a reason to root for them it didn't give me enough of a reason to hope that they were going to figure stuff out and get together and so when they're starting to flirt and things it just it didn't feel earned to me it didn't feel like I didn't feel like I had been hoping for that to happen and so that was that was frustrating. And then the other thing, too, was, I'm going to be really honest, I had a hard time with the age difference between the two. Not because of the number of years between them, and actually not even as much anymore now that I've actually seen the movie. Not as much anymore about the fact that Chalamet's character is 17 instead of 18. But the fact that there are a number of times throughout the film where he very much is acting like a kid. And... So it just it showed like yeah he's 17 and in a lot of ways he's very mature and he's very knowledgeable of like he he's very book smart. He knows a lot of stuff. But as far as maturity he is so far below where Oliver is that it just it made it hard for me to understand why Oliver would be interested in him. So mm-hmm. That's my feelings on it. But beautifully mm-hmm. shot. It was kind of interesting to see a film set in Italy in the early 80s, you know, because that's not a time period that I normally see films done now, you know. So it was cool. I liked, I liked the characters. Again, I thought all the acting was was really good. I did agree that the score was great. So. And I mean, Army Hammer's dancing, and it's great. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: that is like life. You have there's there were so many moments, and I'm kind of happy that Karen didn't watch me intently as I was watching this movie because I was like giggling. i was I was a mess by the end of it because it's just at ninety minutes or however long it is of Army Hammer dancing. Running around in little shorty shorts that leave very little to the imagination, <laughs> and I, yeah, I was, I was into it. But yeah, I mean, the age difference is something that is being brought up a lot, especially yeah. considering what's going on now. And and I was reading an interview with Luca Guadagnino, and he was saying, you know, nobody, nobody brought up the age gap, which is the same in Dirty Dancing, Mm-hmm. which is. Yeah. Really interesting, because I didn't even realize, and I've seen that movie a bajillion times, that
3: there is an age difference between the
0: two of them. But she's 18, because she's getting ready to go off to college, so I think that's part of it.
3: Uh, but, well, I mean, I was 17 when I went to college. I was too. Yeah. I was about to say, you could be young, You could no, be young be. I, no, I, I was
0: barely 17 when I graduated from high school, but I'm just like, yeah. the assumption is, because they never say how old she is, but it's just... just the assumption is she's an adult now because she's going off to college. So,
1: Well, and I think that, too, you know, that looks-wise, they look about the same. It's, it's my big issue with, like, certain actors. You know, some are always just going to look younger than they really are. Anna Kendrick is usually the one I bring up. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> she's always going to look, like, mid-20s. She's never going to have that, like, weird looking like she's, you know, a 40-year-old woman. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a, a, a something that people are bringing up. It didn't necessarily bother me, as as Karen and I talked about. Did it bother anybody else? I mean, or did it, I, was it noticeable to anybody else?
2: The a critic in my screening was talking extensively about it. I know it didn't bother me. I mean, looking at it from... The Elio character, I thought the way he played it, I loved how you could see those emotions. There were those moments where he was childish. There were those moments where he was, you know, trying to seem older than he was. I just, I really felt like I understood that character i mean if anything i felt army hammer plays a bit older than 26 which is i believe what the age difference is supposed to be he just he's so mature and so
1: it's very hard to believe he's supposed to be 24 when he's like 31 (laughs) yeah it's i think he played a bit
2: older but i i didn't think about it or too too much and it didn't bother me
0: i want to i also really want to say because I've taken a hit from some people on Twitter and on award circuit, too. I am not judging anybody who didn't have a problem with it. And some people right. have put words in my mouth trying to say that I am. And I don't. I, like, if, if it worked for you, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not trying to convince anybody that this is wrong and terrible. It's just, I'm just saying that for me, this was a problem, so...
2: As I, as that kid who was always hopefully hopelessly in love with the older guy, it's just
3: how, yeah. <laughs> I
2: understood it.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it, it kind of has to walk that. It walks a fine line. I, I would definitely agree with that, and and I can definitely see where where you would be bothered by it, or maybe where it wouldn't work. I my feeling was that Elia was just mature enough that he obviously. I want to use the word, he obviously knew what he was doing, but I don't think that that's quite what I mean. <laughs> um, the the relationship between them, I think because it takes so long for them to get to the point where they really acknowledge the attraction and the feelings that they're developing. I got the sense at least that they were coming to know each other and to understand each other. It doesn't come off, it didn't come off to me as this whole thing of like an older man seducing a younger man or a, an adult in any in any way, preying on a, a teenager. It felt like two men who are kind of confused a little bit by the mm-hmm. feelings that they're having for each other and are not quite certain what to do with it. And then as time goes on, they begin to to develop this deeper and deeper relationship. That yeah, it it worked. I can see where I can see where you can look at it from a completely different perspective. And and if you feel like that the the characters haven't de- been developed enough, then Certainly, that's that's a place that you're gonna go to immediately. Just like they haven't been developed enough, and he's really just just overage, you know. And but I I wasn't bothered by it personally, and I think I think part of that was because a lot of it was told from Elio's perspective, mm-hmm. and it's his experience and his feelings and desires and. And his maturity in some aspects of his life and immaturity in others. But also you have to say Oliver has maturity in some aspects of his life and immaturity in others because his, you know, his kind of aloofness and attempts to kind of distance himself to be cooler or something like that really do come off as being like he's almost acting like this kind of obnoxious teenager at times which is very real to the way that a, that particularly young adults, people in their 20s and even into their 30s act. So, yeah, I, I wasn't particularly troubled by it, but I can definitely see where you would be troubled by it.
1: So we got to talk before we close out our discussion about this. The scene that most everybody talks about on Twitter, which involves fruit, <laughs> <laughs> how do we feel about that? Because having read the book and how that scene plays out on the page how that scene plays out in the film, very, very night and day.
0: <laughs> I think if it had gone further, I would have suddenly needed to excuse myself and go use the restroom, because, um, no, thank you. <laughs> uh,
1: that's, that's you know, the funny thing is, is that when I told people on Facebook, specifically on Facebook, that I was really excited for this movie, I got a lot of people who were like, Ugh, is that the movie with the peach scene? Like, that sounds disgusting. And I was like, well, you know... You gotta read the book. So in the book am I the only one who's read the book? I haven't. I haven't but I've not read it yet. Okay, so um in the book, it plays out far it does play out far longer in the book. Like it's a couple pages. Um it's very detailed about like motivation and everything. It and it definitely like ends with certain people eat consuming the actual nope, end nope, result nope. Um, Oh my yeah. god. and so in the movie as i was sitting and i think i told karen this too at a certain no i might have told terrence this when we were all talking about it i was like well in the book he ate it i mean just, <laughs> just come on um
0: and that's where i said if that had happened i would have had to just be like nope i'm out <laughs> yeah that would have been a step I mean, too far the yeah. way
1: it's presented in the film i think i think is about as well done as you could you could get that right? scene is exactly. very
0: funny. I want to say like it's it's, it's, it's well done. Plays,
1: and that's the thing is that in the film it plays as humorous. In the book it plays as ser- stark serious. Um, and that's that's kind of what I was I was telling somebody. I was like the book, the movie is probably the best encapsulation of the novel because the novel goes into some really weird shit. I mean like. There's some bizarre, like bodily function moments in that book where it's like re- said with all seriousness, like, you know, we are of one body type of thing. And I was just sitting there like, what? Um, I can't wait to hear Armie Hammer read some of those scenes <laughs> because I'm just going to be sitting there thinking, uh-huh. Um, so, I mean, in terms of adapting the material, it, it works out really well. Luca Guadagnino already says he wants to make a sequel. Where, where do we feel about uh, a sequel? Well, there's a,
3: it's a series of books, isn't there? It's a couple of books.
1: No, what he was what he was saying is that he would just elongate the epilogue. The book ends with an epilogue where they meet back like 25 years later. And he condensed that, pretty much excised most of it, and then condensed it into the, the, the scene at the end, the phone call. So what he was going to do is essentially do a sequel where they come back I'm assuming it won't be 25 years later unless they don't get Timothy Chalamet back. But it would just be them reuniting at a certain point and seeing how like life has
0: changed. Kind of a sun before sunrise. Before, before sun, yeah, exactly, mm-hmm.
1: exactly.
3: I, I can see that working really well. I mean, it, the I, I personally found the characters very compelling, and but because it's this relationship between you know this this very young man. And someone else who is obviously not certain about his sexuality at all. Mm-hmm. It, I think that it could go in some very interesting directions, and and the director is certainly a mature enough and intelligent enough director to do it. You know, it wouldn't feel like a, a kind of a typical Hollywood sequel. But yeah, I, w- I would, I would, be interested in it. Well, I, he, I, I would be into that.
0: Here's what it's I done think right, would, I'll be there. <laughs> what I think I would be interested in is. If they had done the sequel first and then did this as a prequel, I wonder how I would feel about this movie.
2: Because
0: hmm. I am curious to know, like, well, what happens next? What? Do, where does Elio go from here? You know? And so I, I mm-hmm. would be interested in in more. But, but yeah, I, oh. I, would, I would be curious, like, if I saw the aftermath of of this story, like down the road, and then go back and fill in the gaps with what happened, if I would feel differently about it.
1: I want more dancing and more tiny shorts. That's all I yes. want. I'm a soft touch. So,
0: well, um, it's going to be stand? set in the '90s, probably. So it'll be flannel oh my and
1: God. zuba <laughs> pants. Okay, it's going to be amazing. Um, so yeah, where where do we feel uh, Oscar potential? This is also much like Lady Bird for me. Director, picture, acting. I don't know where we would place actors because. I, I feel like if you put two of them is in the same category, it's gonna split the vote, and then it'll go to a third person.
2: I think Army Hammer's got to do. I I would say Army Hammer for supporting Chalamet for best actor.
3: And I would, think that's my, my reading. Yeah, yeah, and I, I honestly I want to see um, Michael Stolberg well that's what i'm thinking i mean even if you have Stolberg
1: in there like that would split so yeah i i have this in both acting categories script and i think score
0: i Um, have it in screenplay and picture and that is it
1: Ooh, Ooh. interesting
2: but i have Um, a winning screenplay okay i I think chalamet's gotta get something this year he's having too good of a year he's at least he's got to be nominated for something
0: I think
1: Chalamet is going to definitely get a nod, but I don't see him getting a win. I haven't looked at the big slate of like, acting potential. The thing um, is that it's the, very the hard so for young men to year, get nominated um, for
0: Best Actor. That yeah, I, he
1: would be the youngest. I think they were saying he would be the youngest nominee since Mickey Rooney uh-huh. in Babes in Arms oh, in 30. Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah,
0: They don't yeah. nominate young men as Best Actors. Best Supporting Actor is a little bit different. I mean, you had Lucas Hedges just last year, but but yeah, it's it's a big hurdle, and you've got some some very big names that are still in the conversation: Gary Oldman, Daniel yeah. Day Lewis, oh. James Franco, Jake Gyllenhaal. So.
1: Oh my God! Wait, we're not saying Jilly Hole is going to get nominated. A lot of people
0: think it's going to happen.
1: What, what film is he? Stronger. S- stronger. Oh, no.
0: you can
1: watch that screener.
0: We're rewarding more
1: fake handicapped people. Why? <laughs> oh uh, well I I, i'm holding that, that
2: hope Jalome's work was too good um
1: yeah. i just i want to see call me by your name again um unfortunately it does not come to sacramento until january 19th so i am hoping that the fates will be kind to give me a screener because i plan on having this movie on a loop in my house thanksgiving christmas day you know what we're just gonna watch this <laughs> nothing says celebrating the holidays like like call me by your name um I'm guessing. So, yeah, um, that's going to close out our uh, lengthy review episode. Um, We will be back next time with uh, a regular main show talking, hopefully, about happiness and light, not horrible people doing horrible things. Um, As always, you can contact us a variety of ways. Karen. How can they get in touch with us online?
0: We are on Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod and Facebook at uh, Facebook.com slash Citizen And you can listen to us
1: on uh, Podbean at CitizenDame.podbean.com. We are also on Stitcher Radio. So uh, as always, uh, and in case you want to get in touch with us individually, I f- keep forgetting that we aren't including our Twitter handles. You can always reach out to me at Journeys underscore film. Lauren, where can they get in touch with you? I'm at LH Business. And Karen Peterson. At Karen M. Peterson. And Kimberly Pierce. KPierce624. So that's going to close out. We are the Citizen Dames, and we wish everybody a safe and happy Thanksgiving. So until next time. Bye.